0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 34. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show.
1: The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and
0: economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Welcome everyone to a very special episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Uh, I don't like to play favorites, but uh, this one was probably my favorite interview thus far. And the reason is that my guest is... Professor Avi Loeb, who is the Frank B. Bear Jr. Professor of Science and Chair of the Astronomy Department at Harvard University. And so Professor Loeb is an expert in black holes, the physics of black holes. He's got a PhD in plasma physics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and he was subsequently a long-term member at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which is a very famous Institute for those who are into the natural sciences. And there at the Institute for Advanced Study, he studied theoretical astrophysics. And then in 93, he moved to Harvard University as an assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy, and he was tenured there three years later. So, among his other specialties or or accolades, Professor Loeb is the founding director of what's called the Black Hole Initiative. And so, I had him on and and we first started talking about black holes because I'm sure many of you saw the image produced by radio telescope coordinated in a certain fashion as part of the event horizon telescope. And you probably saw that famous image that was circulating on social media about a month or two ago. And so I have Professor Loeb explain to us the, the backstory of, of that image and why it was so important. And then I took the time, you know, you got somebody on your podcast who knows a lot about black holes. I asked them a lot about black holes and it was a fascinating discussion. But then, as if that weren't enough, we started talking about Oumuamua, which was this very strange object that had visited our solar system. Well, I guess technically it's, it's still in it, but it's <laughs> moving away quickly. That uh, there were several features of this object that, it, you know, people noticed it and they started studying it. And there were several features or properties that were very odd. And Professor Loeb made headlines because he was one to come forward and say, we can't rule out the possibility that aliens created this thing. And maybe it's a, a space buoy that has been sitting there in deep space, interstellar space, waiting for the solar system to pass through it, as it were. And so he makes the case for that. And so that's the second half of this fascinating interview. Let me say one last thing, because I know I probably have a lot of listeners who are new because you're hearing this episode because of the discussion of, not saying it's aliens, but, uh, so let me just clarify the beginning there of that introduction. Some people think the narrator there is saying that I'm a communist. No, it's, it's not that it's just, he's saying I'm a Christian and an economist. (laughs) So I'm not a communist in case, uh, maybe I'm, I'm letting some of you down. Maybe, maybe you were hoping. Without further ado, let's move on to my discussion with Avi Loeb. Well, we're very pleased to have uh, Professor Avi Loeb with us. Uh, Professor Loeb, thanks so much for joining us here on The Bob Murphy Show. Thank you for having me. So uh, in addition, I've already read your accolades for the listeners, but in addition to you being the chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department, you're also the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative. Can you tell the listeners what that is? Yes, uh, the Black
1: Hole Initiative is the only center in the world that focuses on the study of black holes. It brings together physicists, mathematicians, philosophers and astronomers, all of which are interested in in black holes. We established it uh, about three years ago and Stephen Hawking came for the inauguration. And now we are about to start funding for a new cycle of three years. Uh, We have students and postdocs. And uh, the center actually was initiated before the LIGO experiment detected gravitational waves, uh, ripples in space-time, from the edge of the universe as a result of two black holes colliding. And so uh, black hole astrophysics became very much uh, a very active field of research uh, subsequently, and the Nobel Prize was awarded to the LIGO team. And most recently, we had our our first observational baby within Black Hole Initiative, within the womb of this center. And that's uh, the image of the black hole in M87 that was obtained by the Event Horizon Telescope. Much of the analysis and a significant fraction of the team that analyzed the data on the image of the black hole belongs to the Black Hole Initiative.
0: Okay, well, that's great. And uh, yeah, I thought um, in terms of a news hook, so people could have some anchor here to uh, uh, understand some of these concepts that that would be a good thing to pursue for a bit. So yes, I'm sure a lot of people saw recently the image that was produced. So first of all, can we clarify, was that really a picture of the black hole or is that more of a misleading term?
1: No, it is actually an image, uh, and that's the beauty of uh, astrophysics, where we can actually see the things we are talking about. You know, I'm a theoretical astrophysicist. I work with concepts most of the time, and uh, I had sort of a, a an epiphany or revelation when I visited Australia about a decade ago, and I was uh, visiting Tasmania, an island off the coast of Australia, and there were no city lights, and uh, I looked up the sky, and uh, I could see the... Everything that I'm talking about in my papers, uh, which was quite amazing, because when particle physicists, you know, talk about the Higgs boson, they never see it. It's a concept. It's a way to describe data. But uh, in astrophysics, we are fortunate to have images. So this was the shadow, actually, of the black hole that is seen as a result of the fact that. I mean, the black hole itself does not emit any light. It's the ultimate prison. Anything that gets into it can never escape from it. That's the definition of this region in space where nothing can escape from just due to the force of gravity. But the matter that is swirling around the black hole heats up and radiates, emits light. And the the light that is emitted from behind the black hole gets absorbed by it. And as a result of that, you see sort of a shadow on this wallpaper of emission of light behind the black hole. And this image was calculated theoretically. I myself worked on it about a decade ago. I I made predictions for what the image should look like. And in fact, with a a collaborator of mine, with a postdoc, Avery Broderick, we predicted, specifically for M87, we we wrote the first paper that predicts what the image would look like there. Um, There is a a huge jet that is coming from the center of that galaxy, M87, which is a giant galaxy, about 2,000 times farther than the center of the Milky Way galaxy is from us. Uh, But at any event, there is a black hole lurking there with six and a half billion times the mass of the sun so it's about 1600 times more massive than the black hole in the milky way almost every galaxy has a black hole at its center and this uh, black hole in m87 is big enough in principle for us to image the shadow that it casts but only if we use the, a telescope as big as the earth and you may ask how is it possible to construct a telescope as big as the earth Well, the idea is to have stations uh, in various continents on Earth and then correlate the signal that they detect. And this is called interferometry. It's a method by which you compare notes between different observatories across the globe and by that reconstruct an image uh, with very high resolution of what you're looking at. And so that was demonstrated for the first time at the millimeter wavelength with the Event Horizon Telescope and allows us to get just the appropriate resolution to be able to see the shadow of the black hole.
0: Okay, so let me say something and you tell me if this is right. So what people are referring to is the Event Horizon Telescope or the EHT and that that was the thing that was instrumental in this recent image that was making the rounds on, on Twitter and so forth. It's not like one physical thing that you can point to and say, oh, there's the telescope. That is like the whole system of the interlocking coordinated observations. Yes. So basically, you have
1: uh, multiple observatories in various continents, various places on the globe. And each of them has an atomic clock, a clock that is extremely precise and gets the time and then uh, assigns time tags to the signal that is detected, the light that is received by this telescope. And then once it records the signal, all of these huge data sets that are recorded at each observatory are brought together together. And then a computer is used to correlate them, to analyze the combined signal of all of them. And that's the trick. So uh, actually, there is so much data that it needs to be transmitted through disks, you know, physical things that are carried uh, from one observatory to the center where the analysis is done. Uh, You can't really transmit it through the Internet because data is so huge. I should say that, you know, black holes are fascinating because they are really something quite unusual, structures of space and time. And I actually wrote a recent essay talking about the benefits. If we had a black hole nearby, what would be the benefit for our civilization? You know, and you could use, for example, the black hole as a source of clean energy by uh, dumping trash on it. And you get the energy back in return as the trash circles inwards. you know, just like water going down the drain, mm-hmm. uh, you can um, surf with light sails on the jets that come out of, uh, of these black holes. You can prolong the youth by visiting beauty salons near the, the horizon of a black hole where time is ticking more slowly, so you age more slowly. Uh, you can view the spectacle of the entire universe near the black hole because light uh, is deflected uh, a lot. In fact, you can establish an amusement park where you look forward and you see your back because light goes a full circle about the black hole. Gravity is so strong that you can see your back by looking forward. Uh, You can, uh, for example, when two black holes come together, they can eject uh, things at very high speeds, close to the speed of light. So you can imagine uh, space travel as a result. You can send criminals into the black hole that will act as an ultimate prison uh, with a death sentence at the singularity. And, you know, you can, of course, uh, study fundamental aspects of uh, unification of quantum theory with gravity, quantum mechanics with gravity near the
0: black hole. We yeah, th- thank you. That's that's funny. I hadn't thought of all those applications, and I do want to ask you about some of that in a second. But just again, before we go too quickly over this, so I mean, the the idea of linking up multiple observatories and coordinating the effort to, in effect, simulate a very long telescope the size of the Earth. Am I right in saying that like people had thought of that idea? It's just they didn't have the ability to get the time stamps close enough and to coordinate. The idea was actually demonstrated uh, over the past uh, few decades. It mm-hmm. was
1: already proven that it can work, be- uh, but at much longer wavelengths, wavelengths of a centimeter or longer. Radio, radio waves uh, they are much longer, lower frequency. But it was a challenge to do it at a millimeter wavelength. And uh, we needed to do it at a millimeter because only then you obtain the appropriate resolution. If you take, I mean, if you ask what is the resolution of, of a telescope, It's the wavelength that you operate by divided by the size of the aperture. That gives you the angular resolution, the angle that you can resolve. And it's true even for our eyes. You know, our eyes are sensitive to a particular wavelength, and we can resolve images to some level based on the size of the pupil in our eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, what we needed is uh, instruments that are sensitive to a shorter wavelength. And the problem with that is that there is much more data because uh, the frequency is higher, the frequency of the radiation, so you need to record it more frequently. And as a result of that, you get more data. The, the instrumentation is a bit different. The, the computational challenge is, is higher. So only with modern computers, we were able to do that over the past decade. Before that, the computers were not fast enough. They didn't allow us to do that. So um, it it was uh, mainly a development of technology using a technique that was already demonstrated at longer wavelengths. Uh, So it's not new by any means. And then, you know, reaching the threshold of seeing the the shadow of a black hole, which is quite remarkable and, you know, uh, spectacular and you know we at the black hole initiative we have a conference every year and in one of the in the previous conference uh, as the director of the black hole initiative i summarized the conference and i said that in one of the future conferences we may go on a field trip to a nearby black hole and i recommended to my string theory colleagues that you know they they might want to get into the horizon of the black hole in order to test their theories because that's one place where the unification of quantum mechanics and gravity matters. Mm-hmm. One of them uh, uh, blamed me for uh, having ulterior <laughs> motives for sending them into black
0: hole. <laughs> then, yeah, you'd, you'd be able to publish more if all your competitors were gone. Um, <laughs> so, this is great. So, yeah, if, uh, so that's why, because when people read the conventional news accounts, they would say that they were radio telescopes that were involved. So, that's kind of what you were saying there that technically it's all electromagnetic radiation. So, what, what people think of as visible light, that's just a type of radio wave that's uh, very high frequency? Yes. I mean, electromagnetic
1: waves are different, you know, in the color that we see or radio versus x-rays. I mean, they're just different in the wavelength of the radiation. And uh, basically, uh, we need to use different instruments to detect different wavelength radiation. When you go through x-rays in the airport, you know, that's a very short wavelength, very high frequency. And that's why it penetrates through our bodies. And we can see the, you know, the, the bones and, and, every, and any suspicious object inside the bag because this radiation can penetrate through. and So it's, it's simply shorter wavelength. And radio waves are long wavelengths. So for example, if you look at the radio dial, you would see all kinds of frequencies or wavelengths. Mm-hmm. Longer wavelengths are lower frequencies. So you can look at the dial and see the different frequencies. And each radio station operates at a different frequency. And so by tuning your radio to a different frequency, you are basically sensitive to electromagnetic waves at a different wavelength. And by that, you tune to a particular station that transmits at that wavelength. And so what the Event Horizon Telescope did was to observe at a wavelength of one millimeter previous uh, interferometers, you know, very large baseline interferometers, operated at a wavelength of a centimeter or tens of centimeters.
0: That's the only difference. Just so people have a frame of, so is it loosely speaking correct to say when you're tuning the radio, it's like you're going to a different color? Yes. Yeah. And then the visible color of red, do you have a ballpark? Like what length is that wavelength?
1: Right. So visible light in general, it's a wavelength of the order of a percent of a percent of a centimeter. So it's, it's roughly, a, it's called a half a micron. A micron is 10 to the power minus four of a centimeter, uh, or um, a few times uh, 10 to the minus five. A few millions of an inch, okay. that's what it is. So um, when we talk about millimeter wavelength, we are talking about wavelength that is larger by a factor of a thousand than a micron, than, than visible uh, or infrared light. And uh, so it's much longer by a factor of a thousand.
0: So in principle, if computational speeds increased down the road, could people use conventional visible light telescopes to do the same trick to look at a black hole that way? Or would that not work at that resolution?
1: Yes, in fact, um, people are working on interferometers at uh, shorter wavelengths uh, down to the visible, because if we can achieve that, it will allow us tremendous resolution. And there is already, there are some demonstrations of that, that visible or infrared wavelengths. uh, For example, the very large uh, telescope in uh, Chile uh, has um, components that act as an interferometer, like two telescopes, and... And in fact, they were equipped with an instrument that was monitoring the center of light of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So what they found is that actually the center of light of the black hole executes a circle on the sky, which can be understood if there is a hotspot, a region that is sort of like a flashlight, emitting more light, much brighter than the rest of the material around it uh, that is moving in an orbit, a circular orbit around the black hole. And we predicted something like that uh, a decade ago with uh, every Broderick. And you know, it's very rewarding in science when you make a prediction on a piece of paper and then uh, you see it uh, mentioned or or even shown in the case of the Event Horizon Telescope image on the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, above the fold, You, you see the real image. So in a way, you know, uh, things that belong to uh, thoughts uh, end up being realized in nature. And that's the biggest satisfaction that I can have as a scientist that that I can foresee. I can sort of imagine what nature is like and then people go and observe it and find it to be similar to what I I sort of
0: expected. That's great. So what field would that be? Is that general relativity? Is that like what you were spinning out the implications of in that or is it would it be a different branch? Yes, it was general relativity
1: and, you know, uh, just following the equations that Einstein uh, wrote about 104 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think Einstein himself would have been delighted to see. Both the discovery of gravitational waves, the ripples of space-time that result when two black holes collide at the edge of the universe, as well as the image of the black hole. I mean, Einstein himself, uh, we have to keep in mind, towards uh, the end of his career, he wrote a couple of papers where he dismissed the idea of black holes. He thought that they do not get realized in nature. Uh, And also, he argued that uh, gravitational waves do not exist. Uh, These were two of his late mistakes in in life it just shows you that you know whenever you work on the frontier you know you make mistakes it's unavoidable and Mm -hmm. Einstein himself made mistakes in his career
0: well i'm glad you you mentioned that because that's something i did want to ask about so again for the listener who's getting a little lost so the idea of a black hole is it's so massive that even light itself can't escape and so that's why it's black and then so i was going to ask you in newtonian physics did they think that light didn't have any mass and so that wouldn't be affected by gravity? Oh, no. In Newtonian physics, the concept of black hole already existed. Okay.
1: uh, Except that, you know, Newtonian physics is not appropriate for describing the motion of light. Because Einstein came up with the special theory of relativity, where he explained what happens when you move close to the speed of light. You cannot exceed the speed of light. And he related energy and mass. And uh, so that was special relativity. And then he tried to incorporate that into a theory of gravity, where he realized that gravity is not a force. It's actually a distortion in space and time, because all the objects fall the same way under the force of gravity. That was the insight that Einstein had. Galileo already realized that, you know, if you drop objects from the top of the tower in Pisa, that's what the experiment that Galileo was involved in, objects of different types fall exactly the same way. So Einstein reasoned that this must be because uh, gravity is not a force it's actually space and time itself being affected by massive objects and as all all the test particles that you send will follow the same trajectories in space and time and, and so that it doesn't matter what their composition is they just follow straight lines in what is a curved space and a curved time so that was Einstein's insight. But then he couldn't really solve his equations uh, in, in a simple way. And Carl and Schwarzschild, a, a famous uh, astronomer at the time, uh, managed to solve Einstein's equations uh, a few months after Einstein published his paper on, general, on the general theory of relativity. And his solution was for a point mass. What happens if you put a lot of mass at a point? He realized that you get a black hole. Basically, there is a region around that point that is called the event horizon, inside of which nothing from that region can escape. And uh, that was a remarkable solution. Unfortunately, Karl Schwarzschild was a patriot. He went to the First World War, fought for the Germans. He was Jewish. Einstein was also Jewish, but he was a patriot, so he didn't <laughs> volunteer to go to the front. And and the moral of the story: I mean, uh, Karl Schwarzschild died at the German front a few months after he derived this this solution, and Einstein uh, lived for many years after that and was able to derive additional solutions to his uh, theories. So the moral of the of the story is that. If you want to derive the, the consequences of a uh, theory, you better be a, a pacifist. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so let me just paraphrase what you said there to make sure we're not losing too many people. So in Newtonian physics, the way they dealt with gravity was by a force. And, and yes, the reason like you drop a hammer and a feather in a vacuum and they fall at the same acceleration is because the force acting on the hammer is bigger. It's proportional to the mass. And, but what Einstein said was, well, no, it's actually, if space-time itself is just curved, that's a much more intuitive, natural way to explain why things seem to move the same way around a massive object.
1: Right. But uh, interestingly enough, the Schwarzschild radius around a, a black hole is what you would have expected uh, if you were to just adopt New- Newtonian theory and ask, you know, at what distance from a point mass will light not be able to escape? And it's basically just like asking the question, you know, if you launch a rocket from the surface of the Earth, Mm -hmm. what should be the speed of that rocket so that it will escape from the pool of the Earth? And you basically obtain it by making the energy of the rocket equal to zero. The kinetic energy, the the energy of motion, balances the gravitational binding energy. And that's Mm -hmm. in Newtonian gravity that gives you the, you know, the barely escaping rocket. And from that, you derive the escape speed that is necessary. And we know that for the Earth, it's 11 kilometers per second. Now, if you want it to be the speed of light, you derive the Schwarzschild radius <laughs> by chance, you know. Even though Newton's theory is inappropriate for dealing with light under the force of gravity, You end up getting the correct expression, the correct uh, distance from a point mass inside of which nothing can escape. The event horizon scale, the Schwarzschild radius, Mm -hmm. so to speak.
0: So if you'll permit me, am I wrong, though? In Newtonian mechanics, the speed of light is not an upper bound, right? Couldn't you just keep accelerating something? So couldn't some things escape from anything if you just made them have enough velocity? Yes. Indeed, the
1: people did not uh, know that the speed of light is the, the maximum. And uh, but, but the concept, if you say what is the region around the point mass from where light cannot escape, you would find that it's the Schwarzschild radius.
0: Okay, great. And so, so when Einstein didn't think black holes were possible, that was just in terms of he saw what that would mean in terms of the equations and just thought for some reason nature wouldn't allow a point mass of such density or...
1: Yeah, so his reasoning was, if you imagine a star, at the time people thought that, you know, a black hole would naturally form from the collapse of a star. And in fact, Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, that was the director of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, when Einstein was faculty there, he derived a solution together with Snyder uh, for a, a star collapsing spherically, symmetrically into a black hole. And that was the first demonstration, theoretically, that a star can collapse to a black hole. Because before that, there was just a solution of a black hole that Karl Schwarzschild derived. It was not clear that you can make it out of a collapsing star. And Oppenheimer demonstrated that. Now, Einstein had issues with that concept because he thought that stars, you know, they spin, they rotate, the sun rotates. Mm -hmm. And that would prevent it from collapsing all the way to a point. And, uh, you know, Einstein was correct that the stars spin and if they retain their spin they could in principle avoid collapsing to a point but the the truth of the matter is that in nature that spin is could be lost the angular momentum the rotation of a star can be transferred to material that is ejected during the collapse such that the bulk of the core of the star ends up collapsing to a black hole so So nature finds a way to drain uh, the core of a star into a black hole. And we now, you know, all the LIGO sources are black holes that were made as a result of the collapse of a core of a star. And there is another type of black holes that are made in the universe. And those are at the centers of galaxies. You know, the centers of galaxies are just like a sink. And some of the matter that makes up a galaxy, like the Milky Way, sinks to the center and uh, drains down that Black hole and, and feeds it and makes it bigger and and so we have these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies and then we have stellar mass black holes that are made from the collapse of stars and these are the only two types of black holes that we know about and that we find uh, observationally so far.
0: Okay. So why, why don't we um, revisit some of those earlier things you were mentioning about the implications? So I, I'm sorry if you get this question on time. Did you see the movie Interstellar with Matt McConaughey and uh, Anne Hathaway? Yes. So for those who didn't see, like one of the, the plot elements involved, that there was a planet that was in orbit around a, a massive black hole. So if you if you visited there and then elapsed some time and then came back out, more time would have passed for the people who stayed you know, far away from the black hole. So that principle, of course, is is quite standard. But my question is, in practice, could a human body get that close to a black hole and then come out without like tidal forces ripping your body apart?
1: Yes, so that's an excellent question. So for the big black holes, those that are at the centers of galaxies, like the one in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy or in M87, those uh, black holes in the center of the Milky Way, it's four million times the mass of the sun. In M87, we're talking about six and a half billion times the mass of the sun. Those black holes are so large that the gravitational tidal force uh, that could tear your body apart is relatively weak on the horizon. So an astronaut can go through the horizon, the Schwarzschild radius, the Schwarzschild distance from the singularity in the middle, without being torn uh, apart. I mean, according to Einstein, I I have to explain something uh, that is quite fundamental, that One of Einstein's thought experiments was uh, that if you bought an elevator and you imagine cutting the cord that holds the elevator, such that the elevator is in free fall, then uh, the elevator would fall at the same rate as your body. And so you would not feel anything pressing against uh, your toes. And in, in fact, it would look as if there is no gravity at all. You would fall at exactly the same rate as the elevator and you would not feel the force of gravity on the floor of the elevator. Now, uh, that means that gravity can only be detected inside the elevator if there is a difference in the gravitational force between your toes and your head. And this is called the tidal force. That's the change in gravity between your toes and your head can rip you apart. That's the only thing that matters if you are freely falling. Mm-hmm. and. the uh, That tidal force is what causes the tides, you know, for example, when the moon acts on the ocean, uh, you know, there is a tidal force because there is a difference in the force between one side of the earth and another side of the earth. And as a result of that difference, the oceans get distorted. Okay, and so that is the tide that we see when we go to the
0: beach. So can I stop you just for, I want to make sure people get that. So the idea is, if you picture the Earth as like a a sphere in your mind's eye, and then it's covered by a thin film of water, whatever side the moon's on, that technically pulls the the film of water a little bit closer to it. And so people on Earth perceive that as a high tide, and on the other side of the Earth, far away from the moon, that's the low tide? Exactly. And that is something that, even though uh, the
1: Earth and the moon are sort of in free fall, they're just moving around, you know, and without anything holding them, despite that you can detect that tidal force and the same happens you know if an astronaut is falling onto a black hole then the only thing that matters in terms of survival of the astronaut is the tidal force on the body of the astronaut and the tidal force is very weak for these supermassive black holes so an astronaut can go through the horizon without feeling anything but of course once it gets close to the singularity at the center The curvature of space and time diverges, becomes extremely large. And in fact, the singularity, the idea of a singularity is that Einstein's theory of gravity breaks down at the singularity. The equations cannot describe what happens there. And that's because the theory is incomplete. It doesn't have quantum mechanics. We know what it needs, but we don't know how to marry quantum mechanics and gravity. This is one of the unfinished uh, businesses of physics, that we simply don't have a theory that reliably predicts what happens when Einstein's theory breaks down. And, and there are two places where it breaks down. One is at the centers of black holes. And the second is at the Big Bang. And in both cases, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang. And we don't know what happens at the singularity of a black hole. And Perhaps the solution to both problems uh, has similar physics, but we don't know what that physics is. So when the astronaut gets close to the singularity, that's where the body gets torn apart. There is definitely death awaiting close Mm -hmm. to the singularity, but near the horizon, not necessarily so. And the only when you deal with stellar mass black holes, where the black hole is much more compact, and as a result of that, the tidal force is much stronger, there you cannot survive going through the horizon. I should say that a big black hole, you know, like let's say 100 million times the mass of the sun, you can make such a black hole. In principle, by an engineering project, you just need to pour water into the orbit of Jupiter and fill it up with water. And that would give you just (laughs) a black hole of 100 million times the mass of the sun if you fill the orbit of Jupiter with water. The problem is that you need 100 million solar masses of water. And, you know, even the entire Milky Way doesn't have that much water in it.
0: Okay, so let me just repeat that back to you um, to make sure I got it. So is this the right intuition? So in terms of Newtonian mechanics, the gravitational force is inversely proportional to the square of the distance. So if you were just using Newtonian mechanics and like you're imagine you're falling feet first towards a star, the force acting pulling your feet, accelerating it is stronger than the force pulling your the top of your head because of the length of your body, right? But the farther away from the center of the star you are, the smaller that difference is. Exactly. And and so you're saying that with a supermassive black hole, even at the event horizon, because other things equal, the the more mass of the black hole, the further away from the center the event horizon is. That difference for the length of your body and the forces that it's pulling on you gets smaller and smaller. That principle still carries. Exactly, and the the
1: thing to keep in mind is that the size of the horizon is proportional to the mass of the black hole, and the force that you were talking about scales as one over the distance square. And there is another factor of 1 over distance because you are talking about tides. So altogether, the tide scales as 1 over distance cubed. And because of that, bigger black holes exert much
0: weaker tides. Okay, okay. So again, just to summarize then, it's in principle, human. I mean, as I think people think, oh, if you go into a black hole, you're dead. But technically, you could go into it in the sense of you're never getting out. Like from the outside, we would see you disappear and you couldn't send any information out. But you could live your whole life inside the event horizon as long as you stopped falling into the black hole once you got past the event horizon?
1: Yeah, well, you need a very strong rocket to prevent you from falling into the singularity. Uh, Most naturally, you know, you would just fall into the singularity after, let's say, 10 minutes or so uh, in the case of the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. For the black hole, you know, in M87, it will take you a thousand times longer than that. But eventually, you know, unless you have a very powerful rocket, you will uh, find your place uh, at the singularity. And, and it's not at all clear what will, uh, what will happen to the matter that makes your body. Oh, by the way, I, I should tell you a, a funny story about this because I actually, um, a year ago, I had the problem with the, the sewer at our home. Uh, the basement got flooded and uh, I invited the plumber to come and fix it. And we realized that there were tree roots that were clogging the sewer. And then I started thinking about something that I don't usually think about, which is that the water that, you know, comes out of the house has to go somewhere. It goes to a reservoir, a place where, you know, the town collects all the water from all the houses. And uh, that led me to start thinking, this discussion with a plumber led me to think, what actually happens to matter that falls into a black hole? We we tend to forget about it once it enters the horizon, because we can't see it anymore. But in fact, it must go somewhere. And, uh, you know, one possibility is that there is a reservoir near the center, near the singularity. There is some kind of an object where all the matter collects. And this is an extremely dense object. Another possibility is that the matter is funneled somewhere, you know, maybe to another universe. Uh, it's not known. As I said, we don't have a theory of that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity. And in fact, you wouldn't find uh, many papers talking about this question. Uh, I just happened to think about it as a result of the Seward problem we had a year ago.
0: Yeah, that, that is. So, again, just for outsiders, so that you're quantum physics studying the, you know, what happens at the very small level. And in a sense, general relativity is, you know, real, real large macroscopic things. And it's not clear what happens with the interaction of those two branches of physics. Right, because um, quantum
1: mechanics uh, was invented, was discovered to describe atoms, uh, you know, microscopic systems. And it does so extremely well. General relativity, the theory of gravity, describes the universe, you know, much uh, the universe at large. Uh, but bringing them together uh, is very challenging. And Einstein tried to do that. He didn't succeed. And, uh, you know, subsequent uh, generations of physicists uh, attempted to do that. The contender that is most popular right now is string theory, but unfortunately, it's not a unique theory that there are many versions of it that are allowed, and it wasn't tested against experiments. So we don't really have confidence in in our ability to unify quantum mechanics and gravity. And, And as a result, we don't have a unique solution to what happened before the Big Bang, you know, and what happens at the centers of black holes. Okay, great
0: stuff. Let's take a quick pause in my discussion with Professor Loeb to talk about the case for IBC. So I know I probably have many listeners here in this particular episode who don't know my work in economics. But if you're the sort of person who enjoys a Harvard professor talking about how his colleagues may be overlooking something important, uh, maybe something analogous is happening in the world of finance. And I would argue that that is the case. And so I invite you to check out my book, The Case for IBC, where I and two co-authors, Nelson Nash and Carlos Lara, one's from the insurance sector, the other has been a a business workout consultant for decades dealing with distressed businesses. And I'm, of course, a professional economist where we discuss a, a technique of using life insurance policies as a way to manage cash flows. And we deal with all the standard objections and I think many of you might be surprised at the power, the simplicity of this thing that's been sitting here all along and how it can help you weather the upcoming financial storms because uh, we don't have confidence in what the Federal Reserve has done. So to see the book, learn more about how to order it, go to thecaseforibc.com. Why don't we <laughs> now transit? I know we, we have a limited time with you left here, but I do want to talk about your work on what's called Oumuamua. Is that a decent pronunciation?
1: Yes, that's perfect.
0: And so that's um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have seen you know, the, the image of that or, or the artist rendition, I should say. So, and I'll link to this, folks, at uh, bobmurphyshow.com slash 34. That's the episode you're listening to. But you, uh, Professor Loeb, you had a good article at Scientific American saying six strange facts about the interstellar visitor, Oumuamua. So can you summarize, like, wh- wh- what are the properties of this thing that makes it so unusual?
1: Oumuamua was the very first uh, object that uh, we detected, we discovered near the Earth that originated from outside the solar system. And um, so we discovered it by chance uh, using a telescope called PANSTARS in Hawaii, and that was looking for killer asteroids, asteroids that endanger our civilization. And then we found this very strange object that moves too fast to be bound to the sun. So it must have originated outside the solar system. And at first, people thought it's a rock. You know, most naturally, it's just like any other rock uh, that we found before in the solar system, but except this one originated from outside. But the problem was that this object had an extreme shape, much more extreme than any other rock that we found in the solar system before. It was at least 10 times longer than it was wide and most likely had a pancake um, shape rather than uh, uh, cigar-shaped, as uh, was depicted uh, online in many places.
0: Can I ask you, and and you know that because of the the fluctuation of its brightness, that's how you knew it looked like that?
1: Uh, So it it basically tumbled, it rotated every eight hours, and the best fit to the brightness variation that it exhibited during that time was for a pancake-shaped object, If it was kicked around many times uh, along its uh, journey, that's the most likely uh, shape that one would assign to it. And then uh, it also originated from a very special frame of reference, which is the frame of reference that you get to when you average over the random motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And uh, it's called the local standard of rest. And this object was at rest in that frame. Only one in 500 stars are uh, so much at
0: rest in that frame. Can I can I stop you there? Because I know this is a critical point of the argument. And I think, though, for regular listeners. So first of all, somebody might say, what do you mean? You know, everything's moving. There's no absolute standard of rest. You know, they're, they're, you can't really say what the one object is at rest. The other one's moving because it's all relative. So can you just say a little bit more about what do you mean by this local standard of rest?
1: Yeah, so if if you look at the collection of stars in the vicinity of the sun, the sun is just one star out of many, uh, you know, tens of billions in the galaxy. But if you just look at the neighborhood of the sun, you see that stars move relative to it, each other at uh, some random motion uh, of, of the order of, you know, 20 kilometers per second or so. But you can take the average of the motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun and you call that the local standard of rest. It's sort of like going to a street where you see people moving around And you ask, okay, but there is some average frame of reference, which is the street frame of reference, where you average over the motions of people and and you get, you know, sort of the frame of reference that is the the average one. And that's what people did in in the vicinity of the sun. And it turns out that this object is almost at rest in that frame, sort of like a buoy sitting at rest uh, on the surface of an ocean. And the solar system is like a ship bumping into it okay but uh, this is not the most unusual feature Uh, the most unusual feature is that this object didn't follow an orbit that was shaped just by the force of gravity due to the sun it deviated from that there was an extra push that it received during its orbit and such a push is sometimes obtained for comets as a result of the rocket effect when ice on the surface of a comet gets uh, evaporated by sunlight, it pushes uh, the rocket, you know, just like a rocket, it pushes the the comet and you end up with an extra push. The problem is that in this case, there was no evidence for cometary tail. There was no dust and no carbon-based molecules in the vicinity of this object to a very tight limit so so somehow the object received the push but without commentary outgassing associated with it and just you know yesterday there was a paper elaborating on this point uh, and saying how unusual this object was that it received an extra push without showing evidence for any outgassing around it
0: can, can i can i stop you there just to paraphrase so the issue about the local standard rest you're saying given the trajectory of this thing it seemed like it was originating from outside the solar system because it wasn't moving along with everything else. It seemed that like it was in a sense at rest and the solar system was moving past it. Right. And that was one thing. But then you're saying on top of that, even if we are just picturing it being like a stationary rock that was sitting there in deep space and the solar system moves through it, if that's all it were, you would expect that once it got near the sun, that its motion would be totally determined by the sun's gravitational field. But you were saying, no, actually it deviated from that. Something else was going. On. It wasn't just the sun interacting with it.
1: Right. And there wasn't any cometary outgassing. There wasn't any, you know, it, it should have lost about a tenth of its mass if there was uh, enough uh, evaporation to push it at, uh, as much as needed for the orbit to deviate. But, but we didn't see anything. And, and moreover, the object was uh, relatively cold. We didn't detect any heat coming off it. And in addition, you know, we didn't expect this object to appear in the first place. I actually wrote a decade ago, wrote a paper forecasting how many rocks we should see. And we shouldn't have seen such an object uh, based on, you know, on the solar system, what we know about the formation of the solar system.
0: Can I stop you there just to because yeah, I'd like you to elaborate on that. So let me paraphrase what I thought your point was from from your article. You were saying in terms of how solar systems form and things that we would expect to just randomly come across these, let's call them buoys, things just bouncing around local standard relative to the local standard of rest. But this thing with the type of instruments we had, it was very surprising we would have noticed this thing.
1: Right, right. So in order to explain the the discovery of this object, you need a huge number, a a, a much larger abundance of such uh, uh, rocks than we would expect naturally to come from a nursery like the solar system. And so uh, the the actual detection, the discovery of this interstellar object was a surprise to me because I I wrote a paper a decade ago forecasting whether we should see such a thing with with pan stars and, and we expected nothing. So um, then the question is, what is what gave it the extra push? And the only thing I could think of is sunlight uh, basically bouncing off its surface. And that's similar to the concept of a light sail. And uh, we suggested that. Now, uh, in the past few months, other people said, oh, maybe... It is uh, indeed uh, sunlight pushing it, but instead of a sail, you know, of the type that we are trying to construct, a a light sail right now for space exploration, uh, where you just bounce light off a, a very thin film of material such that it pushes it. Instead of that, people suggest as an alternative, a, a cloud that is very rarefied. So just like a cloud in the air that is extremely dilute.
0: Well, well can I stop you for a second? Is it just for people to get So the idea of a light sail, just like a wind sail, is a thin, but a lot, lot of surface area, a piece of material that the wind presses against it and that's what carries the ship around. You're saying a light sail would be a very thin, but large surface area relative to its width object that the actual photons hitting it causes it to move.
1: Right. And we, in fact, uh, are developing this technology right now. Uh, I'm leading a project called the Starshot. We're uh, aiming at uh, developing a light sail to Propel a small probe to visit the nearest star system. Uh, It needs to move at a fraction of the speed of light, about uh, 20% of the speed of light, in order to reach the nearest star within two decades, because the nearest star is four light years away. It takes light four years to reach us from that star. And therefore, in order to get to the star uh, within our lifetime, within a couple of decades, probe needs to be sent at about a fifth of the speed of light. And the only technology that allows that is the light sail uh, technology. So we are actually working in this project on developing a very powerful laser that will push on a very lightweight sail uh, and allow it to reach a fifth of the speed of light in the direction of the nearest star system so that we can send a camera that will report back with a photograph of whether there is life out there.
0: Is that Alpha Centauri?
1: Yes, the Alpha Centauri system is actually made of three stars. Mm -hmm. There is Alpha Centauri A and B, which are stars just like the sun, and Proxima Centauri, which is a dwarf star weighing roughly 12% of the mass of the sun. But that star, Proxima Centauri, is known to have a planet in the habitable zone around it. So it could potentially have liquid water on its surface and the chemistry of life as we know it. And we would like to know whether it does have life on it or not. One thing is clear that if there is a civilization out there, they don't know as of yet the results of the 2016 election because (laughs) it takes uh, four years for life to get there.
0: So maybe their opinion of, of humans' rationality, depending on one's political views, is different. Um, so So your idea then is you're saying you, you put this thing out there. there's a small camera attached and it's this large surface area, but very thin material. And then from Earth, we send a laser to push it and accelerate it out towards Alpha Centauri.
1: Yes, and uh, it takes uh, five times the distance to the moon uh, to get to that speed. For a laser of power of order a hundred gigawatt, uh, it takes a few minutes. It's roughly the amount of energy and time that was needed for liftoff of the space shuttle, except that it's delivered to a single gram of material. That's the concept.
0: So is it just a matter of, of expense at this point, or is there any remaining like, practical difficulties to actually do this?
1: Well, that's exactly the question we are trying to address. Uh, we are now in the stage of research and development, and we want to demonstrate the feasibility of the technology. But at any event, this is in order to reach speeds that are a fraction of the speed of light. If we were less ambitious and and didn't really want to to achieve those speeds and were happy with uh, relatively modest speeds uh, of tens of kilometers per second, then the technology is already demonstrated. And that's the kind of a light sail that that
0: we were imagining for Umuamua. Mm -hmm. So with the remaining time I have you here, let's, of course, go to the real fun stuff. So you have been quoted widely in the media because you're, and I'm sure the listeners, even if they hadn't heard about this before, as you're ticking off all of the interesting attributes of this object, you know, the the one obvious conclusion is, you know, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. And so can you speak to that? Well, I think we should
1: have uh, the possibility when we see an anomaly like this object, we should at least put this possibility on the table and... And judge whether it's viable or not based on evidence. The problem is that many of my colleagues have a prejudice, not just colleagues, I mean, but mostly colleagues, because the general public I found to be more open-minded. Uh, and the reason, you know, is simple. There is a taboo on discussing extraterrestrial civilizations because of this baggage of science fiction and UFO reports that, um, you know, violate some of the principles of of, uh, science. And um, as a result of that, the scientific community decided to divorce uh, this concept and basically not include it in the scientific discussion in the mainstream. And I think it's a mistake because uh, we may not be alone. And uh, moreover, we may not be the smartest kid on the block, you know, and and if we just put blinders uh, on our telescopes, it, it will resemble to the reaction of the church in the days of Galileo. The, Galileo said, "Just look through my telescope, and you'll be convinced that the Earth moves around the Sun." And you know they they didn't want to look at it, the, uh, and they put him in a house arrest. And uh, you know the problem with that, if you have a prejudice, then the progress of science is slowed down because you are, have the conviction that it's not even worth checking something. And as a result of that, you are missing on important discoveries. And, you know, the discoveries of of exoplanets, planets outside the solar system, was made possible because people were willing to look for a Jupiter uh, mass planet near a star like the sun much closer in. You know, and and the first person who uh, had the concept of looking for that was uh, Otto Struve back in 1952, and uh, he advocated looking for such uh, hot Jupiters, Jupiters that are close to their star because it's easier to detect them. They, they are moving the star much more. They they have a higher likelihood of coming in front of the star and being noticed. And For four decades, 40 years, astronomers on time allocation committees refused to give time on telescopes to look for such systems because they argued, you know, we know the solar system. We know that Jupiter is far from the sun and we understand why it is far from the sun. Therefore, there is no point in wasting telescope time. In searching for Jupiters that are closer to their host star. So they never looked. And then in the nineties, the early nineties, for the first time, people started looking and found those systems. And they were quite abundant. And that opened the whole field of exoplanets. And to me, the problem is that with prejudice, you are basically postponing the discoveries of today, and you are you're making the scientific Endeavor less less efficient, and that's why I have a problem with that. And as a, you know, I made it it a point to communicate with the media and express this view because I think that those scientific colleagues of mine that refuse to discuss a subject they, they're making a mistake. They behave just like those time allocation committees in the days of Otto Struve back in 1950, after 1952. And then I should say that, you know, after Umuamua, you know, I I got engaged in this field because it, uh, you know, I didn't work on on, on, uh, asteroids or comets before, but that made me interested because I think, you know, it's one way of learning about what happens outside the solar system by looking for a message in a bottle uh, rather than using telescopes to look far away. And so, Together, you know, I was interviewed for a radio broadcast a few weeks ago, and I was asked to comment on a, a meteor that was discovered above the Bering Sea uh, off the Kamchatka Peninsula in, uh, in Russia uh, back in December 2018. And it was 10 times the Hiroshima blast. And um, they wanted to ask me questions about it. And I started reading online about meteors. And then I found a compilation of all the meteors that were discovered over the past 30 years. And so I asked an undergraduate student at Harvard uh, that works with me, I asked him to check the fastest moving meteors and extrapolate their orbit back in time and try and see if any of them originated from outside the solar system. Because if it did, you know you can use the Earth as a detector uh, the when an object passes through the atmosphere of the Earth, it creates this uh, streak of light as it burns up, and that's called a meteor and so uh, the student checked and and we found that the second fastest uh, object meteor in that catalogue uh, was unbound to the sun. And the, the fastest uh, meteor uh, was the fastest simply because it moved opposite to the direction of motion of the earth. But it turns out that it was actually bound to the sun. So, so we published the paper and, and uh, we claimed that this might be uh, the second uh, object that came from outside the solar system in addition to Oumuamua. And in fact, you, you can uh, use meteors as uh, a way of uh, detecting objects that came from outside the solar system.
0: So let me um, just paraphrase that. So you're saying you realized another method to possibly to test to see whether something, you know, the the best explanation, the best hypothesis was that originally outside the solar system was right here at Earth looking at certain meteors because we have pretty good data on its velocity and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then you've just worked backwards and said the the way this thing was moving, it wasn't just moving around the solar system. It wasn't in the suns. it, It came from outside the solar system based on its velocity.
1: Exactly. You can extrapolate the orbit, the trajectory back in time and figure out whether it was bound to the sun or not. But the most interesting aspect of meteors is that they burn up in the atmosphere. So in principle, you can figure out what they were made of by examining, by studying the gases that they evaporate into. And if they leave behind a relic, uh, which is called a meteorite, you know, if if they end up leaving something behind, you can examine that and uh, study it and and learn what uh, happens you know, outside the solar system. So that's much better than Umuamua. In this case, you can have the actual direct evidence for what the object was. And, you know, it's just like going to the beach. And most of the time you see seashells that were naturally swept ashore. But every now and then you see a, a plastic bottle that was artificially made. And, you know, it's worth keeping an open mind. And not assuming that everything is rocks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, if you if you were to bring a cell phone and show it to a caveman, uh, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, the caveman would look at it and think that it's a piece of rock because that caveman saw rocks all of his or her life, right? But we shouldn't behave that way. We should not assume that everything is rocks.
0: So can I ask you just to elaborate on that? Because it's funny. On the one hand, you know, we have like the, the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. But it sounds like you're saying there are many scientists who, is it actually like a methodological objection, like sort of like how people say the intelligent design movement, that's just not biology, same thing here? Or is it more just of a professional, they don't want to be labeled as, as kooks, and so they kind of shy away from talking about aliens?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the second. I, I think people are worried about their image. And that's the mistake, I think, uh, because, you know, I, I see science as a continuation of our childhood curiosity. And as a child, if you remember yourself when you were a kid, I mean, you were not afraid of making mistakes. You were exploring things around you. And, you you know, it's it's a learning experience. As a child, you learn about the world by trying different things and you're doing it out of innocence. And and I see uh, the privilege of being a scientist as a continuation of that. We are allowed to make mistakes. We shouldn't worry about our image and we should innovate. And something bad is happening to those kids when they enter academia and get tenured as professors, you know, because you would, I mean, the concept of tenure, the whole purpose of it is to give freedom to scientists, to argue things that, you know, would be risky. Uh, and as we talked before, you know, Einstein made mistakes. It's it's part of the learning experience. You you make mistakes, but you learn in the process. The whole idea is to learn and not to have a prejudice. But many scientists are worried more about their image. They are seeking awards, they are seeking honors, belonging to societies and so forth. And as a result of that, they direct their research in a more conservative path, and they don't take risks. I find it surprising that businesses are willing to take more risks than scientists, and businesses do it even though they are for the profit, you know, they are just doing it uh, to get money. Uh, they realize that, you know, by thinking broadly and, and taking risks, you know, you can make more money than by not taking risks. And you should allow some think tank of people, you know, that are creative and innovative, you know, to, to think about things that are not necessarily practical at the moment, but might become practical in the future. And so to me, it's a great surprise to see that the business world recognizes the value of uh, taking risks and innovating, whereas the scientific community is more about honors and about image. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why populist movements argue that science is part of the elite because scientists, they think about themselves as being separate from the public, as, you know, they very often close themselves off in the ivory tower of academia and only communicate the results to the public without showing, you know, that most of the scientific process involves conjectures, unproven, and has a lot of uncertainties, you know? And only at the end of the process, when you have enough evidence, you figure out what the truth is. It's just like a detective story. It's like, it's like when a plumber comes to fix a pipe, you know, and there is a problem that you can do all kinds of tests and eventually figure out what the issue is. And, and the same thing is doing science. You know, it's a human activity that involves making mistakes. It's a learning experience. And it's not about our image. It's not a a vehicle, a a tool to glorify oneself. That's not the purpose of doing science. And frankly, I'm very disappointed at this conservatism that people show that they're not willing to consider it as a learning experience. And, you know, I, I feel that it's not superior to any other human activity. It's basically trying to find the truth. And it's extremely important for our society to promote science this way, because much of the innovation that we benefit from in technology and otherwise comes from science.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you wholeheartedly there. Um, so, again, on this, this critical issue, I, I have to ask, because you know, I'm sure it occurred to many of the listeners, earlier when you were saying actually the artist's rendition, which makes it look like a, like a cylinder that's kind of rocky, and, and you were saying actually you think it would be more of a, of a pancake shape, is it too crazy to say it looks like a flying saucer? <laughs> well, the, you have to understand in the context
1: of science fiction. A flying saucer has its own engine, right. and uh, it's a much bigger object than we are talking here. Here, you know, we are talking a very lightweight uh, object. Uh, Potentially was, you know, uh, swept in the wind, uh, so to speak. I mean, it was pushed by sunlight. It's very light uh, relative to its size. And
0: um, therefore, it's not,
1: you know, it's not really a saucer in the, in the traditional way that was depicted in, in science fiction.
0: Okay, but right. And I was obviously just being provocative. There. I don't mean that it's, it had a place for an occupant to, to reside. But I just mean if somebody drew up a, a disc, a thin, a very thin disc, would that be consistent with the observations? that's one possibility yeah it could be like an uh, but we don't know the shape because we don't
1: have an image it could mm. be uh, a very thin object that is umbrella shaped or it could even be uh, spherical uh, shaped you know in the context of starshot we are trying to figure out what is the best design for the structure of the sail turns out that an umbrella shape or a parachute shape the uh, sail is not riding in a stable fashion on a laser beam It often tilts aside, and a more stable configuration is is a sphere, actually, it turns out, sort of like a balloon.
0: So I'm curious, um, for your colleagues who are skeptical of the extraterrestrial hypothesis for Umuamua, do they have other explanations for each of those anomalies you mentioned, or do they just say, we don't know, but, you know, let's not rush right to aliens? Okay, so what you find are
1: two reactions. There are people that, for every anomaly of this object, they find a separate Improbable solution. so in other words, a solution that does not get realized for the vast majority of asteroids and comets uh, that we know about in the solar system. so maybe one in a thousand chance that some asteroid or comet will show that uh, that is good enough for them. They say, okay, it's unusual, but you know it, it but then the the problem of that is that for every anomaly, it's one in a thousand. once you take the probabilities and multiply them, you end up with a, a, a negligible chance that This is an object like the ones we have in the solar system. So whether it's natural or artificial, it must originate from a very different nursery than we are familiar with.
0: So yeah, let me ask you, so does everybody agree that it's from outside the solar system?
1: Yes, and that the community is pretty much uh, united. Uh, But I should say that there is a second approach that was taken recently, and that's to claim that the object is very fluffy, very rarefied somewhere between the density of air and a hundred times less than the density of air. Sort of like the steam that comes off a a boiling pot of water. So, um, I mean, I find those those explanations less likely because um, it's not clear to me how an object like that would maintain its integrity uh, as it spins around for eight hours. Imagine the steam coming off a pot of boiling water. I mean... You know, if you imagine a size of 100 meters, you know, huge, like a football field or something, an object of this size spinning around every eight hours being made of something that is less dense than air. I mean, I I find this to be very unlikely. Uh, So another possibility is, of course, that the measurement was wrong, that it didn't really deviate from an orbit shaped just by the sun's gravity. And on that, I cannot say anything. I mean, I'm just believing the, the report that was made by very reputable observers that uh, analyzed the data and, and reported that there is a deviation. And if you accept
0: that deviation, it's not easy to explain it. Can, can I ask you, is, is that you said something about the size of a football field. Is that your best guess as to how big this thing was in terms of surface area? Well, yeah, so our, we don't have an image of it. So the only estimate for its size comes from
1: the amount of reflected sunlight. And that depends on, on on its reflectance, which fraction of the sunlight that is impinging on its surface was reflected. If it's a hundred percent, if all the light that fell on its surface was reflected, then the size should be of order twenty meters, you know, roughly the size of a big yard uh, of a house. You know, and uh, on the other hand, if it, it reflected the of order a tenth of the light that fell on it then it, it's 10 times uh, bigger. It's somewhere between those dimensions, between the size of a football field and the size of a, a, a backyard of a house.
0: Okay, and then how close did it actually get? Was it one-sixth the distance between the sun and the earth?
1: Yeah, about that, yeah.
0: So in a sense, at this point, the solar system kept moving past it, again, using the local standard of rest. But you were, I think I read somewhere that you were saying, if we want to, we could send a probe to go look at it more closely, like there's still time to do that?
1: No, actually, um, the way to think of it is just like a guest that came for dinner, and by the time that we realize that it's uh, unusual and special, the guest already left through the uh, the front door into the dark street. So. The issue right now is it's moving faster than any chemical rockets that we can send to chase it. And even if we were to send something that moves fast enough to chase it, we don't know exactly where it is because it's very faint right now. So Mm -hmm. you need to equip such a mission with a telescope that would search for it. And it would be extremely faint because this object gets fainter and fainter as the inverse of the distance from the sun to the fourth power uh and so it's extremely dim right now and uh, we cannot really uh, chase it but but we don't need to because there should be more of the same you know this if this is a, an object out of a population of other objects on on random trajectories we should find more in the future and there is the large synoptic survey telescope which is a, a telescope being constructed right now that that will start operating within three years It will be much more sensitive than pan-stars and should detect one such object every month or so if uh, there are many of them. If we don't see any of them within the first few months of the large synoptic survey telescope operation in a few years, then it would mean that Umuamua was even stranger than we thought because it must have been unique in some
0: sense. Okay, so am I right in saying based on your calculations from, I think you said 10 years ago, you think that we shouldn't have come across something just randomly like this, and that's one of the reasons you were saying it might be extraterrestrial, but you're saying either way, within the next few years, we'll be able to look with much more accurate instruments, and then that then we'll see. Was that thing really that unusual or not? Maybe the calculations from 10 years ago were missing something? Right. Well, if if this object
1: originated from a natural source, let's imagine not artificial, an artificially made object, but... Something that came from a nursery different than the solar system that produced many more objects than we expected. So that would mean that with a future telescope, we should see many more. And uh, since that telescope, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, LSST, will be much more sensitive, it should detect once per month an object of this uh, size. You know, of course, there are many more smaller objects. Uh, These are the objects that give rise to the meteors, for example, the the meteor that I mentioned before was roughly a meter in size. So even though the Earth is much smaller than the Earth-Sun separation uh, and the chance of hitting it is small, there are many more smaller objects than big objects. And so there is a chance that one of them would hit the Earth per decade. But uh, the point is with more sensitive telescopes, you can see smaller objects Or you can see the same size object when it's farther away. Either way, we will have more of them, Uh, as long as Umuamua was not unique.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Avi Lub. I know you got to get going here for another commitment. So we really appreciate you coming here on The Bob Murphy Show. And uh, by all means, keep encouraging other scientists to (laughs) to buck conventional wisdom and to to say what they really think is going on. And we just appreciate your efforts. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.